Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host lively and educational discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. We hope you enjoy this episode. I'm your co-host, Madeline Gochi, a 23 here at Dartmouth. In this episode, we take a look at trade negotiations, the USMCA, and the potential for a US-UK trade deal. Discussions on trade have dominated headlines in the past few months, with the renegotiation of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and ratification of the USMCA, an updated agreement between the US, Mexico, and Canada. We've seen a resurgence in debates around free trade. Across the Atlantic, the UK's exit from the European Union has resulted in an attempt on the UK's part to negotiate and secure free trade agreements with trading partners. It's the 20th of February 2020. Our guest today is John French, Professor of Economics, Douglas Irwin. Um, Professor, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So before we begin, um, Professor Irwin, can we ask you just to um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe the classes you teach um, at Dartmouth and perhaps any research that you're currently doing? Sure, I've been at Dartmouth just over 20 years, uh, so uh, my main field of uh, specialty, I guess, is international trade. So Econ 39 is sort of my bread and butter course, and uh, I'm teaching that in the uh, spring and the, in the coming fall of 2020. And um, I also teach uh, the Future of Capitalism, which is a political economy project class in the government department. I've taught uh, economic ide- the Clash of Economic Ideas, Econ 70. Nine, uh, which is about sort of the history of economic ideas and how they've evolved over time. And then another sort of special course is Econ 70, which I've co-taught with my wife, who's also an instructor in the uh, economics department, Marjorie Rose. And there's an economic immersion class. And we've taught that the past two years where we teach in the fall, uh, usually comparing two countries. In the past, we've compared Chile and Argentina. And then in December, during the winter, we go to uh, spend one week in Chile, one week in Argentina. And, Students do research projects, we meet with policymakers, and it's sort of a fun way of spending part of the December break. That's excellent. Okay, well, it's no coincidence that we've called you here to discuss trade in general. But um, I mean, the U.S. cycle—I re- mean, the news cycle rather—has been inundated with talk of you know free trade agreements, and that's in the wake of the USMCA, which admittedly I know very little about, but I'll defer to Madeline on that. Um, and also, you know, post-Brexit negotiations, just discussing trade deals and frantically trying to get trade deals after um, the UK leaves the European Union. So I'd like to start briefly before we get into specifics. Um, what is free trade? Why is it good? And what does a free trade negotiation look like? What are the stages that they go through? Right, so many synopsis of Econ 39, uh, most, internet, most countries sort of depend on trade uh, for uh, a good part of their livelihood. Um, and going back to Adam Smith, who wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations in 1776, um, he's sort of, he and subsequent economists have sort of uh, studied international trade in terms of how it uh, yields benefits for the countries that are engaged in trade. So countries that we think that are very isolated, that don't trade with other countries, um, Cuba, North Korea, um, some uh, remote countries in Africa perhaps that have high trade barriers and certainly high trade costs of exchanging goods across markets, they tend not to do very well. Whereas countries that are more open to trade uh, tend to prosper because uh, trade is a way of uh, using your resources more efficiently um, and, uh, and there are a lot of benefits that come about as a result of trade. So generally uh, countries have wanted to be engaged in trade but there's always this question of um, how do you protect certain producers from foreign competition? Um, won't that cost jobs? Won't that hurt the economy overall if you lose your manufacturing industry or something like that? So policymakers are sort of caught in this tussle between wanting to 
uh, open up foreign markets for their exports and uh, engage in trade that way, but also they want to have some trade barriers to stop uh, imports from hurting certain domestic constituencies. So there's that trade-off. And then trade negotiations are simply a way that countries sort of get together and sort of try to resolve some of these differences. So countries can unilaterally get rid of trade barriers or unilaterally impose them. And we can talk about uh, the US case in, the, in that context. Um, but also sometimes it's easier politically if they sort of coordinate um, their market opening. Uh, so we'll talk about USMCA in a moment, but um, that was a case where the US, Canada, and Mexico sort of got together and said, we have these remaining trade barriers. Uh, it's sort of politically difficult to get rid of them unilaterally, but if we all got together and sort of made trades in terms of, well, we'll open up our agricultural sector if you open up your uh, some other sector, um, they can come up with some deal to uh, keep those markets open and establish a free trade agreement. So countries can do things unilaterally. They're sovereign countries, they're sovereign states, but also they find it advantageous sometimes to have these negotiations to coordinate their policies. And so what, what, sorry, um, what are the stages of a negotiation? I mean, I know that they generally take at least a few years, at least five to six years. So, I mean, when both these countries come to the table, first of all, who's coming to the table exactly? I assume they're like bureaucrats. And, you know, what, what do they discuss? How do they, how do they implement? How do they get to implementation? Yeah, there's all sorts of elements to this. For So first of all, um, uh, you can have two countries just get together, uh, such as the UK now will have to start negotiating with uh, other trading partners since they're out of the EU. Um, or you can have a group of countries, um, and there's something called the World Trade Organization, which is composed of uh, over 160 countries, and supposedly that body uh, undertakes some trade negotiations as well. So you can go from two countries, just bilateral, or you can do ten countries or five countries. Uh, there's something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, so that's about 13 or 15 countries or so, and you can scale that up to the World Trade Organization. So the complexity obviously increases as you increase the number of countries because they have all different interests, but even a bilateral agreement uh, is very difficult to uh, undertake, and as you mentioned, it takes a long time to negotiate these things. They're very complicated. They deal with uh, trade and agricultural products and um, uh, manufactured goods, has to do with foreign investment, it has to do with trade and services, digital trade. So, and all these things are very complicated, and writing it all down on a piece of paper is uh, very difficult. And then who's doing negotiations? Usually it's trade bureaucrats. Um, and then it has to get kicked up to the political level to see whether there's support. So there's always domestic um, discussion, too, about uh, what's in the best interest of a country in terms of how you're negotiating with other countries. Okay, and you mentioned the World Trade Organization. Could you quickly give us like a brief rundown of what exactly their role is? And also, we've heard this term WTO terms. I mean, uh, in, re in reference to Brexit, that you know the UK might go and defer to um, trading on WTO terms and like a, a schedule of of tariffs or something. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? What exactly that means? Sure. So the origin of the WTO actually goes back to the after World War II, um, and. Uh, and world trade, the, the whole economy had, the world economy had this great depression in the 1930s. So things were an utter collapse and sort of trying to rebuild things after World War II. They said one thing we want to uh, help re rebuild was world trade. And so they formed something called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And uh, that was just a few countries, about 20 or so, that got agreed to get together to start reducing trade barriers in a small way to uh, um, uh, increase trade. And that sort of continued on in the post-war period. And then in 1995, more and more countries were joining, so they created something called the WTO. So the WTO wasn't really something new. It was just sort of this continuation from uh, the post-World War II period. But it's a, a big, it's an international organization based in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, they sort of monitor uh, some of these trade agreements that have been reached. 
So um, on trade and goods, there's something on trade and services, there's something on trade and investment and intellectual property. Um, they also adjudicate international trade disputes. So instead of just two countries fighting a sort of a trade war amongst themselves, um, they've signed these agreements and the agreements give you certain procedures about how you're supposed to resolve things. So the WTO is both a forum for countries to negotiate and talk about trade matters, and also it's sort of this court, if you will, to adjudicate trade disputes. Oh, WTO term. So what that means is uh, since Britain is leaving the EU, so they had free trade with the uh, other members uh, of the EU, um, since they're out, they don't get to have free trade uh, with um, France and Germany and uh, Spain and what have you. So then the question is, well, on what terms will uh, the European Union take British goods, and on what terms will Britain take European goods? And so this WTO term uh, mean, just means that in the absence of any sort of trade agreement between Britain and the EU, uh, it goes back to the way the EU treats all other trade with the rest of the world. So that's sort of another way of putting it would be a uh, technical term in, that, in uh, trade diplomacy is most favored nation. So on average, EU tariffs are about 3, 4, 5% or so. So what that means is British exports used to face no tariff barriers going into the EU. Now they're going to face a tariff of about 3, 4, 5%, which isn't huge, but it's obviously a lot higher than it was before. So one of the things that two countries are going to have, two groups are going to have to do is um, see if they can do better than that in some sort of uh, post-Brexit trade agreement. Very cool. Um, so can we kind of transition to talking about the UK um, and this kind of post-Brexit um, trade agreements? Um, so are there examples of which, or of which the UK is going to start negotiations with the United States? Has that kind of begun to flush out? Um, or are, is the nation still kind of reeling in the post-nature um, of Brexit in which they haven't kind of thought about the types of trade deals that they will make with the United States and other countries? Yeah, so Britain is, is in a bit of a tough spot as a result of Brexit in terms of its international trade. Um, because when you're part of the EU, you really don't have to worry about trade policy. It's whole European-wide trade trade policy. And so they haven't had to, Britain itself hasn't had to negotiate with other countries. The EU did that. Um, and the EU has reached all sorts of uh, free trade agreements with other countries. Canada, um, they're working on one with, with Japan. Um, uh, they've sporadically discussed one with the U.S., but that's never uh, really gone very far. So the EU has all these sort of the network of uh, trade relationships around the world. Now, Britain, having stepped out of that, in some sense has to recreate um, all those trade agreements by itself and renegotiate them all. It doesn't get them automatically now that they're not part of the EU. So for example, the uh, UK does not have a free trade agreement with Canada. So presumably they're going to want to replicate sort of what the EU had with Canada. So uh, one can imagine it's going easily or, or more difficultly, um, uh, if that's a word. Uh, so the easy way would be if Canada said, look, um, we had reached this agreement with the EU, uh, let's just apply this to uh, UK-Canadian trade. So you take sort of an existing trade agreement and you just sort of modify it a little bit and you sign off on it and it goes into effect. Um, that would be sort of the easiest way for Britain to proceed. And I should note that Britain also has had to build up the negotiating capacity, um, which they didn't have before. Um, they'd sort of outsourced their trade policy to the EU. Now they've got to do it themselves. So they've, they've been hiring a lot of people and trying to build up their infrastructure. The difficult way would be if Canada or, say, the U.S. said, look, um, that agreement that we have with the EU, we sort of want to start from scratch um, because you're a different country and uh, we have different commercial uh, interests in relation to you. 
So let's sort of maybe think about that. The EU-Canadian uh, uh, agreement as a template, but really we're going to have some hard bargaining ahead of us. In that case, things could stretch out for many, many years. Now, in the case of the Britain and the U.S., um, the U.S. does not have a trade agreement with the uh, EU, so there's no real template. So uh, we're sort of starting from fresh. And uh, already there are a lot of uh, controversies. So for example, one of the things the U.S. exports is a lot of chicken. And what we do with our chicken is we dip it in chlorine. We sort of chlorinate our chicken to, to purge it of uh, diseases and uh, microbes and things of that sort. And in Europe, they don't like that idea. And the U.K. doesn't like that idea. So they're already protesting, we don't want chlorinated chicken. Um, and then there's certain things that uh, Brit maybe Britain wants access to the U.S. market that we're not going to open up our market for. So for cheese is sort of an important one. Our dairy producers are very powerful. So if um, the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain think that uh, it'll be easy, since we're English speaking, we have this long history of friendship, it's going to be easy to have a trade agreement, it's never easy to have a trade agreement. Um, there's always going to be controversy, a lot of fights about particular sectors. So um, I think it's going to be uh, more difficult than people have thought. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I mean, it's funny that you mentioned chlorine, chlorine dipped chicken, because when I was doing research on this, that's pretty much what kept popping up. So, I mean, there's also been mention of stuff like um, pharmaceuticals and negotiations on, you know, if the UK will, if the US will have um, full access to the UK, UK market in terms of exporting um, certain drugs. Um, there's also been mention of, I think, environmental protection. Apparently, Congress um, isn't allowed to mention greenhouse gas emissions specifically. Um, in a trade deal. I mean, are these um, fundamental differences on very core issues going to be sticking points? And how long do you think, I mean, an educated guess at how, how long negotiations um, will, will take? Um, usually these negotiations take uh, one to five years. Um, so uh, there's, so for example, um, USMCA, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little mm -hmm. bit, but that was basically an updating of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Still, that, that updating took over a year. So, and it was very hard negotiation. So um, starting from scratch with the uh, UK, uh, it's, gonna be very, it's not gonna be easy. Um, and you're right, there are all these, uh, they may agree on 90% of things, but uh, I think there's a phrase, I, I won't come up with it off the top of my head immediately, but nothing is decided until everything's decided. And so that last 5% or so, that last 3% can be really, really difficult and can hold things up for quite a while. So you're absolutely right. Pharmaceuticals is very important. The U.S. exports a lot of uh, pharmaceutical drugs, and uh, we want high prices for those. We want to, you know, our firms, uh, you know, want to compensate for their um, big uh, investments in R&D and what have you. And so the U.S. government is behind them, pushing for uh, maintaining those high prices. Whereas I presume the U.K. and the National Health Service wants generics and wants cheap drug prices. So that's just one of many, many issues that will be on the table. Awesome. Um, so we've kind of been talking a lot about the United States in the context of international trade and the way that that um, kind of operates. Um, let's now switch to kind of a United States focus. I know that that's kind of where a bulk of your research and knowledge is about. Um, we've kind of been dancing around the subject of the USMCA. Um, so can you just give a quick summary for some, maybe some of our listeners that don't know what the USMCA is um, and the way that the United States and the Trump administration is kind of viewing trade? Right. So. Um the, the USMCA is called the U.S.-Canada-Mexico Agreement, uh, or U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, um, and it's really just a, an update of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was negotiated in the late 1980s and early 1990s by, um, first of all, the, the George H.W. Bush administration, and the President Bill Clinton sort of pushed that through Congress. It was very controversial at the time because uh, it meant U.S. 
uh, free trade with Mexico. Uh, we'd already had a free trade agreement with Canada, so that wasn't so controversial. Um, but the idea of allowing Mexican goods in duty-free um, was sort of uh, as a huge uh, political debate at the time. And really quickly, can you explain what duty-free? Oh, sure, yes. Um, that just meant uh, without tariffs. So if you're a Mexican producer of uh, avocados, um, traditionally you faced pretty high tariff barriers, taxes, uh, in terms of selling your products in the U.S. market. And under NAFTA, the U.S. agreed to get rid of those taxes. Um, and Mexico also had to get rid of its taxes on American goods. So our cars, our um, uh, machinery, um, our corn, um, things of that sort. And it was very politically sensitive because on both sides, because it meant, uh, gee, maybe U.S. automakers will move to Mexico and then export their cars into the U.S. without paying the taxes at the border. And it could be that U.S. farm exporters, particularly corn producers, who are very efficient, they could overwhelm uh, you know, poor Mexican corn farmers. So a lot of political sensitivity on both sides, but they went ahead with it. Uh, bilateral trade boomed uh, between the U.S. and Mexico, and uh, there are a lot of studies showing um, who's benefited uh, from that, uh, and, uh, and also some of the labor market dislocation as a result, because um, uh, you're, you're, you're maybe exporting more, but you're also importing more, and that could hurt certain domestic constituencies. Um, there was a famous phrase at the time, the giant sucking sound. Uh, the fear was that all of our jobs will go to Mexico from the U.S. because, um, uh, you know, Mexican labor is so much cheaper. Why would you manufacture anything in the U.S. if you have access to the Mexican market uh, uh, down there in terms of producing things? So uh, there's a famous um, uh, uh, Texan, Ross Perot, who ran for president in 1992 on an anti-NAFTA platform. He was a third-party candidate, and uh, he said there's going to be this giant sucking sound. That has been President Trump's view, too. He thought he's uh, on the campaign trail in 2016. He said it's the worst a trade agreement ever reached. It's a nightmare. Uh, Mexico's taking advantage of us. Uh, they get all the benefits and what have you. Um, and so he campaigned to get rid of NAFTA. And when he came into office, um, he sort of decided for various reasons not to uh, just pull out of NAFTA and abandon it and rip it up, but to renegotiate it, to try to make it a better agreement. Um, and so that's these negotiations which took a year. Um, what's sort of ironic is that he didn't really change all that much in NAFTA. Um, so he's rebranded and said, oh, it's the best trade agreement ever now. It's really a big improvement. All they did was um, tighten some restrictions on trade in automobiles. Um, they also brought, which, which will limit trade, limit how much can sort of be outsourced from the U.S. So it might create a few jobs in the auto sector uh, that way in the United States. Um, but it basically preserved the NAFTA framework um, because the U.S. actually exports a lot to, to Mexico. There are a lot of farmers and other uh, manufacturers that really depend on that market. Um, we're lobbying the administration to keep the basic NAFTA framework intact. And then they sort of updated it. Um, NAFTA was a pre-internet agreement, so they took some provisions from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and threw that into the mix, and that's what USMCA is. And what's interesting is that it was, it was passed um, with big bipartisan majorities in both the House and the Senate. So um, even though trade sometimes is politically divisive, in this particular case, um, members of both parties really wanted this new USMCA. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that kind of negotiation that happened internally in the United States. I know, especially in the House of Representatives, um, I believe there is a lot of negotiations that are occurring with labor and environmental protections. Um, did we really see a change or an increase in labor or environmental protections at in the final stage of the USMCA? Um, or did a lot of those concerns the Democrats have kind of get negotiated out, perhaps, in the Senate? 
Um, it wasn't negotiated out in the Senate, um, and uh, certainly the Democrats wanted more protection for labor and the environment, as they did in 1992 or 1993 when the Clinton administration was trying to get it through Congress. Um, they certainly did in the USMCA tighten uh, um, the labor uh, requirements for uh, free trade in automobiles. So there's a minimum wage uh, provision where certain parts of the car have to be produced with uh, workers that earn at least $16 an hour. And then there's something called um, rules of origin, which is how many components have to be made in North America for it to qualify as a duty-free North American car. And they bump those up from 62% uh, to about 75% or something like that. So, you know, on the whole, they're sort of minor changes, uh, but they're enough to bring um, more Democrats on board uh, to support it than they had in the original NAFTA. Also, sort of over, uh, sort of the um, thing that people weren't talking about is that that really brought out a lot of support for USMCA was the threat that if they didn't pass UN and USMCA, US might pull out of NAFTA. And no one really wanted to see that. Maybe a few people, Bernie Sanders might want to pull us out of NAFTA, but most members of Congress did not want to really upset the apple car, so to speak, and uh, sort of hurt our trade relationship with Mexico. That's a great pivot, um, because now we kind of want to talk about the future of trade. Um, and with the election coming up, obviously, either President Trump is going to be reelected or a Democrat will enter the office. Um, so starting first with if President Trump is reelected, how do you see the future of U.S. trade, especially in the context of having to renegotiate or to negotiate trade with Britain? Do you think that we're going to see similar trade agreements to the USMCA? Do you think that that was kind of the large trade agreement that we're going to have. Um, what do you? What are your thoughts on the future of trade? Sure. Um, well, I absolutely agree with sort of the premise of your question that whether President Trump gets a second term or not is a big fork in the road for U.S. trade policy because he's not a big fan of international trade. Um, in fact, uh, there have been many books and articles that have been written about um, his policies, but he actually wrote in, in one memo, uh, trade is bad. So whereas most economists and, and others sort of think trade is a good thing or something to be uh, um, promoted, uh, um, uh, he certainly doesn't see it that way. And I think he, he you know, the way economists view trade is it's sort of um, a positive sum game. So it's like if we were to trade something amongst ourselves, you know, we don't have to do that unless we both think we're getting the better part of the deal. And both of us can think we're better off as a result of trade. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't go to FOCO a lot, but I love the food there. But if you were trading food amongst one another, you wouldn't make a trade. Um, well, first of all, you could always just go and get it yourself. You don't have to really trade. It's not like a um, high school cafeteria where you have your you know, lunch that your parents packed for you and you're sort of stuck with that. But, um, you know, most trade is voluntary. And if you do so, uh, you know, you think you're better off as a result. Um, he doesn't see it that way. So um, he sees it more as a real estate developer, if you will, or a casino owner, uh, where he thinks it's zero sum. So uh, if Japan's winning, we're losing. If China's gaining, we're losing. And he has various ways of judging this. One is whether we have a trade deficit with the country, in which case uh, we're importing more than we're exporting. He'll say that's a terrible thing, that they're taking advantage of us and taking our wealth from us. Um, anyway, for many reasons, he doesn't think trade is good or it needs to be rebalanced in some way. So that's why he's imposed a lot of tariffs on China um, and on steel. Um, that's why these trade negotiations are very difficult because he's always trying to get a better deal. Um, what's interesting, once again, from an economist standpoint is that, um, say NAFTA, um, what, what's a better trade deal? So if you agree to cut your tariffs to zero on my goods and I agree to cut my tariffs to zero on your goods, that's about, sort of that's 
establishing the rules of trade, we don't know how much trade will take place after that, but we have equal rules. Um, and the president doesn't think that equal rules are good enough. He's worried about what the trade flows are um, and wants something more than that. But uh, if you're just abolishing barriers or establishing rules, you can't, it's tough to get, uh, have unequal rules so that we have a better deal than some other country. You mentioned that a candidate like Bernie Sanders would uh, like to you know, abolish NAFTA, pull the US out. Um, I plead ignorance on that. Could you tell me a little bit about um, what would happen if a progressive candidate like Sanders won the presidency um, for US trade? And also just a bit of background as to why exactly he opposes it. Is it similar to Trump's reasoning or is it a completely different set of, um, of reasons? Actually, there's some similarity there. So he thinks that uh, trade has hurt the uh, working class in the United States. So he's worried about imports of manufactured goods from China and Mexico and other countries taking away jobs of uh, U.S. workers. And there's certain, certainly certain sectors of the U.S. economy where we're now importing those goods that we used to make for ourselves. Um, so he's very proudly said, I've opposed all these trade agreements. Um, we should uh, uh, rip them up and pull out of them and what have you, so in a, in a way that uh, Trump has as well. I think if he was elected president, what he would quickly discover is that um, trade is a two-way street. So it's very easy to focus on what we're importing. Uh, what gets neglected in the discussion sometimes is what we're exporting. And that's one reason why President Trump didn't pull the trigger and pull us out of NAFTA, because he was warned by a lot of his aides, uh, cabinet secretaries and others, that actually we export a lot of stuff to Mexico. And a lot of his constituents, uh, farmers in the Midwest who supported him, um, their livelihood is dependent on sales of grain to Mexico. And if you just uh, uh, you know, rip up NAFTA, um, yes, we're not going to import as much from Mexico, and it might create some jobs there, but farmers are going to be, uh, a lot of farmers will be bankrupt because they, they depend on those sales. So I think what Sanders doesn't quite recognize is that, okay, that if you don't like these trade agreements, A, uh, that's your, sir, your premise, what constitutes a better agreement? And he's never been in a position where he's really identified what, what's a better agreement. Maybe no agreement. Maybe that's what he wants, uh, no agreement whatsoever. But uh, B, if you rip up some of these agreements uh, and U.S. exports start falling, well, that's jobs, too. Um, and so what are you going to do for those workers and those farmers that won't have access to foreign markets anymore? So I think the, the basic fact is we're, the U.S. and most economies are pretty intertwined and interdependent. And uh, you might say, oh, we'd be better off if we reduced that interdependence. Um, but that creates a lot of pain, too. So we're sort of stuck in some sense with, uh, with what we have. And the question is, what are the rules going forward, or do we want to sort of pull back a bit um, from trade? Okay, excellent. Um, with that, I think we've just about run out of time. Um, Professor Owen, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed that discussion. Um, please join us probably in two weeks. We're not too good in the timing here um, for another interview. Thank you.